God, as we look to your word in 1 Corinthians 15, I pray, God, that you would move in power as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth. God, would you open up eyes that have not seen the beauty of Jesus? Pray for those in this room who have not surrendered their lives to Jesus. God, would you move by your spirit, bring them to conviction, give them faith to believe. And Lord, for those who have believed, Lord, I pray that you would stir our affections for Jesus all the more. Pray as we look to the gospel, God, that you would deepen our love and our appreciation for Jesus. And in his name I pray, amen. Well, I wanted to, uh, to begin uh, the sermon today uh, by thanking whoever uh, dropped this off at my desk uh, a few weeks ago. There was no name. Uh, this is a, an electric bug zapper called Zap It. And uh, if you were at the member meeting in August, you probably remember that fly that was circling me as I was presenting and super distracting. And so whoever was so thoughtful of giving me this gift just wanted to thank you. Uh, but also just to confess, I mean, when I opened this, I had no idea what it was. I was reading it thinking like, how do I use this thing? Like, do the bugs come to me? Do I need to go and hunt them and swat at them? I, I believe they zapped the bugs. Like I read that, I received this gift. I just didn't know how to use it. And, uh, and yet, I'm just going to keep this up here for any other bugs that want to come my way as I present things on stage. But I wanted to, to share that with you this morning um, to, number one, thank whoever uh, gave me that gift genuinely. But also, I share that with you because I, I wonder if the Corinthians felt the same way about the gospel of Jesus Christ as I felt about this electric bug zapper. And what I mean by that is that this was a gift that I received. This is a gift that I read the instructions. Okay, I believe that this thing kills bugs. I just didn't know how to use it. And clearly, it's still in its package, unused, unopened. Hopefully, it doesn't offend whoever gave me that gift. But I haven't actually put it to use. And I wonder if the Corinthians could relate to that when it comes to the gospel where clearly they received it. Paul says they received it. Clearly, they believed in it. And yet what we've noticed over these first 14 chapters is that they haven't been using the gospel in living out the power that's been made possible through Jesus's death and resurrection. What we've seen throughout this letter is that the Corinthians have struggled with unity. They've struggled with different sin issues. They've struggled with doctrinal confusion. And so the Corinthians may not have had a bug problem in their church, but they had something much, much worse. They had a misplaced and underutilized gospel. And so what does Paul do with that? How, how does Paul respond to that? Well, as we get near the end of this letter, what we notice Paul doing is he saves the most important topic, the gospel for last. See, I think the apostle Paul knew that all of the Corinthian issues, whether it was division or pride or sexual morality or issues in marriage or singleness or conscience issues, Christian liberty issues, spiritual gift issues, corporate worship issues, the list goes on and on and on. Paul knew all of those issues stem from misunderstanding and misapplying the gospel. And look, the same is true for you and for me. And so what we're going to see Paul do in these 11 verses is Paul is going to anchor this church in the gospel by challenging them to rehearse the gospel, treasure the gospel, know the gospel, and live out the gospel. 
We're going to walk through each of those four points this morning. Let's begin in verses one and two, where the gospel must be regularly rehearsed. As Paul begins one of his largest and longest explanations on the gospel and the resurrection here in chapter 15, he makes clear that this is not new information for the Corinthians. No, he is actually reminding them of something that they already know to be true in the gospel. Notice in verses one and two, the the emphasis Paul has on what to do with the gospel and not just believe it. He talks about the gospel can be preached, the gospel can be received, the gospel can be stood upon, the gospel can save, the gospel is something we hold fast with, the gospel is something that we believe in. It's a lot of things that you can do with the gospel, and that's very intentional by the apostle Paul, who, remember, is writing to a church that has misplaced and underutilized the gospel. But I think one of the things that he is emphasizing here, especially in this first phrase, is he is reminding them of the gospel. The question I want us to explore this morning is why? Why does he need to remind a church about the gospel? They're already saved. Like, doesn't the gospel just forgive our sins and that's it? No, it actually does much, much more. And so I I think a couple of reasons why he's reminding this church of the gospel could be that they've had deep unity issues, right? We've seen the amount of discord and, and division in this church. And so he's reminding them of the gospel, which creates biblical unity. He could also be reminding them of the gospel because they're, they're misunderstanding the implications of the gospel. And so they need to be reminded that The gospel doesn't just save us, the gospel shapes us. It's not just a get out of jail free card, but the gospel actually empowers us to live by the Holy Spirit in every area of our lives. But I think another reason why Paul is reminding them of the gospel is because of the dangers of gospel amnesia. What I mean by that, in short, is that we are very, very forgetful people. In fact, we're so forgetful that the Bible has this command to remember over 200 times throughout the scriptures, that we tend to forget the things that we should remember, and we tend to remember the things that we should forget. And I think it's hard for us because we do live in the technological age where it feels like we are programmed to wanting and almost needing the latest information on a daily basis, that we look to the news, we look to social media, we look to our sports teams or whatever the case may be, and we want the latest and most relevant, relevant information on a daily basis. And we almost get this type of security by being in the know, by having the most updated info, the most relevant and latest information. And that's fine, But sometimes we can take that same mindset into our relationship with God, where we demand from God new truth, new revelation, new promises, new information from him, because the truth that we already know just doesn't seem like it's good enough. And yet, the solution to many of our problems is not new revelation. It's not new promises. It's not new truth. What we need more than anything is to rehearse and to recall to mind and to trust more deeply 
the truth that we already know in the gospel, that we take the truth in his word and we rub it deeper into our hearts. And if we don't, there are several things that can cause uh, destruction in our lives if we forget the gospel. Let me list a few for us. I think one danger is that it leads us to a fear-based obedience in our relationship with God. What I mean by that is that when you forget that it's Jesus's righteousness that makes you accepted before a holy God, you will live out your obedience to God as if your acceptance is all up to you. That if you're having a, a good day spiritually, God is really happy with you. But if you're having a bad day spiritually, watch out, he's gonna send a trial or he's, or he's angry and disappointed with you. So our obedience can often become fear-driven rather than love-driven. That we can obey God in order to maybe earn some sort of acceptance and love from him instead of obeying out of what Jesus has already established in our acceptance before God. That's one danger. But another danger though of gospel amnesia is that it stifles our neediness for grace. Like when you fail to rehearse the glorious truth that God has saved you, not because of you, but despite you and your sinfulness, that suppresses our desperation for grace on a daily basis. See, one of the things I love about the gospel is that the gospel first humbles you before it saves you. The gospel brings you low before it actually satisfies you. And really the only recipients of grace are those who are fully convinced that they need grace. And if you're not regularly rehearsing the gospel of Jesus Christ, this free gift of grace, you will live a self-sufficient life, believing the lie of pride that basically all of the outcomes of your life are up to you. And that is a very destructive way to live out your relationship with God. But then I think another uh, negative result of gospel amnesia, and I think this is where Paul starts to press a little bit, is that it leads to a failure to hold fast until the end. This is part of what we see in verse two, especially as Paul is reminding this church of the gospel. He wants them to stand upon the gospel. He wants to make sure that their belief in the gospel is not in vain so that they can hold fast to the gospel until the end. To put it simply here, if you fail to remind yourself and rehearse the gospel on a consistent basis, you will not last spiritually. And the reason why that's true is because there are so many, too many false gospels and false messages out there that if you're not regularly wringing out your soul of those false and destructive gospel messages and immersing yourself in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not gonna persevere until the end. We are, we are constantly bombarded with false messages and false gospels. Uh, messages that seem to be true, but they're not true. We're bombarded with the prosperity gospel. We're bombarded with uh, the materialistic gospel. We're bombarded with the American dream gospel or the social justice gospel or the get out of jail free gospel or the gospel that says that your success in your job will save you 
Or if you have the, the perfect looking family, then that will validate you. Or, or if you have a certain financial position, then that will save you. Or if you have someone's approval, that that will, like this list goes on and on and on. And all of these false gospels threaten our resolve to hold fast to Jesus until the very end. Look, you need to hear this this morning, that our hearts, all of our hearts, are grabby. All of our hearts are constantly grabbing hold of something to satisfy it and to sustain it. Our hearts can't not hold fast to something. And so the question is, is, is your heart, are you holding fast to Jesus or are you holding fast to something else? And like before you quickly just answer that because you're at church this morning with Jesus, understand how sneaky our hearts actually are. What I mean by that is that typically on Sundays, when you walk out of this room at 12 and you go on with your day, you are pumped up for Jesus. You're pumped up with the gospel. You're holding fast. But what tends to happen by noon on Mondays? Your heart has gravitated towards a false gospel. Look, this is why we need to regularly rehearse, why we need to be reminded of the gospel on a daily basis so we can both renounce false gospels and we can remind our hearts to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bake this in to your life on a daily basis. So Paul reminds them of the gospel, but secondly, he wants them to treasure the gospel. Look with me at verse 3a. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. And then he explains what the gospel is. Now, Paul is, I think, making a loud declaration with this phrase. He's basically saying, out of all the things that I've taught you, out of all the things that I've proclaimed to you, none is of greater importance than the gospel of Jesus Christ. This has to be your highest priority. This is what you are to treasure above all else. In fact, Paul has used that language of treasuring the gospel elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he talks about we have this treasure referring to the gospel in jars of clay. Now, the question is, how do we treasure the gospel? Like, what does that look like uh, on a more practical basis? Like, how do we protect our hearts from taking for granted the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, it's a great question. And I think that even Jesus is trying to answer this question in these two short stories, these two parables in Matthew 13. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, here's the second story. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, the question is, is what do these two stories have in common? What do they teach us about what it means to treasure the gospel? Let me point out a couple of things from these two stories. Number one, both the man who found the treasure in the field and the merchant who found the fine pearls recognize the treasure's value. And I think that a fool looks at a treasure and gets distracted by other things. A fool doesn't recognize the treasure that's in that field and goes on with his life. 
But the first step here is to treasure the value and the worth of what you see before you. Secondly, though, what we see here is that they received this with joy. There was excitement. There was eagerness. There was delight at coming across this treasure that was right before them. And then thirdly, we notice that they sacrificed whatever it took in order to get this treasure into their lives. Now, what does that mean for us when it comes to treasuring the gospel? A couple of questions for you. Number one, do you treasure the gospel above all else? Do you view the gospel honestly as this incomparable worth compared to anything else in this world? And secondly, when you think about the gospel, does it fill your heart with joy and excitement and eagerness and delight? Or do you think about the gospel and you're like, yeah, like I know that the gospel saves me, but all these other things excite me more. And then thirdly, do, do you sacrifice things in your life in order to make more room in your heart for the gospel to be enjoyed by your heart? Like here, I mean, we see these individuals selling all that they have. Like, are you sacrificing the sin in your life, the selfishness in your life, the, the pleasures of this world, not to earn the gospel, but to make more room in your heart to rightly enjoy the gospel? Look, church, if we want to be a faithful church, faithful followers of Jesus, we must treasure the gospel above all else. I was just thinking about the parents who were up here on stage. We had over 11 families over two services dedicate their kids today. And I was just thinking and praying for them today. And, and, and I was thinking really about any parent and even every, any grandparent. Like when it comes to what we treasure and instilling that into our kids and our grandkids, it is more caught than taught. Like as our kids watch us, they know exactly what we love most. Like as our kids watch us, they know exactly what lights up our eyes when we talk about it. They know exactly what captures our time. They, they know exactly what our top priorities are. And the question is, is it truly Jesus or is it something else? And you could say it's Jesus, but what if we asked your child today or your grandchild, hey, what do your parents, what do your grandparents treasure above all else? The gospel must be treasured. Thirdly here, and this is the, the meat of this passage, is that Paul wants us to know the gospel deeply. I love what Paul does here in verses three through nine. He outlines what the gospel actually is and actually shows us how we can have confidence to know that it's true. This is so helpful, especially for me as I was thinking about this passage. You know, Paul could have just easily have said the gospel and moved on, but he actually takes time to explain it in detail. And I think he does that because one of the greatest dangers in the church is when we just assume that we know the gospel. Like I think for us, even as elders of this church, when we're doing membership candidate interviews, people wanna become members and, and we're getting to know them, we're interviewing them, we ask for their conversion story, their testimony. We want to know if they know and believe the right kind of gospel. And there have been times in which we've interviewed member candidates and they don't know the gospel. Like they start talking about, well, I've just always believed or, or I've just always have had faith. 
or I've just always have grown up in the church and there's no mention of Jesus, there's no mention of faith and repentance, there's no mention of the cross, there's no mention of the righteousness of Jesus. And so in those moments, in those interviews, you, you better believe there's a pivot. And now we're talking about not membership, we're talking about their own salvation. And so the question that I have for you today, and you might be a member of our church, but this is still a good question to ask you, do you know the gospel today? Like, could you be able to sit down with somebody else and explain what the gospel actually is? Like, where would you begin? What needs to be included in order for it to be considered the gospel and not just fluffy religious talk, not just Christianese language, but the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures? See, we need to know that. We need to know how to do that so let's see where Paul begins. Look with me at verse 3b here. Paul begins, catch this, he begins by highlighting something that Jesus has accomplished. He says that Jesus died for our sins. Now that phrase is so powerful, there's so much in there. And I think a good place to start is by asking the question, why did Jesus die for our sins, right? And look, in order for the gospel to be good news, it has to be bad news first. Here's the bad news. Here's the reason why Jesus had to die for our sins is because you and I, we are sinners. We've dis disobeyed God. We've all offended God. We've all fallen short of his standard of perfection. You are a sinner, all right? I know it's not a popular message in culture, but you need to hear it from the scriptures here you are a sinner, which means biblically, there must be a punishment for your sin. In order for God to be just, there has to be a punishment. And according to the Bible, that punishment is death and eternal separation from God forever and ever in hell. Look, here's the bad news. I'm trying to love you well. I'm giving you the bad news here. That's what we deserve. Like that's the price that we should have received for sinning against a holy God. Like, like don't, don't confuse that message there. That's exactly what we earned for our disobedience. And we had nowhere else to turn. We had no answer for that kind of predicament of this chasm between us and a holy God. Like your good works, you're not gonna close that gap. Like that's not the solution. We had no solution in and within ourselves. And that's exactly when, according to the scriptures here, Jesus died for our sins. We love that part and we should love that part, but don't miss, don't, don't skip over the position that you were in before God saved you. I want you to feel the weight of this, to feel exactly the kind of doom and hopelessness that someone is experiencing who hasn't been saved by God yet. Just think about that. Maybe if you're here and you're not a believer, that's exactly what you feel right now. Or maybe if you are a Christian, take yourself back to that moment before God saved you and listen to that you were an object of God's wrath. Think about that. Think about the weight of that. It's not that God was like a little bit disappointed with you. No, you were an object of his wrath. You were an enemy of 
the powerful God of the universe. That's where you were before Jesus died and saved you. And yet, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did die in your place. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was your substitute, that Jesus did take your penalty, that Jesus absorbed all the wrath of God that should have been placed on you. Jesus took it as he hung there on the cross to pay for our sins. Isn't it amazing? Like, have you ever just stopped and thought to yourself, oh my goodness, the son of God did that for me. And it's not because you were worthy of that. It's not because you earned that. Not because God's thinking, man, we really need Johnny Smith on our team. Jesus, go die for him so we can get him here. No, again, you were his enemy. You were far from him. And yet Jesus died in your place. Love the gospel. We're just getting started here. So hang in there. But, you know, we understand Jesus died for our sins, but 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says that he, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a beautiful verse because in that verse, we see the wonder and the scandal of grace in the great exchange. And look, I love the great, I love this part about the gospel because as Jesus was hanging there on the cross, yes, he took all our sin. Yes, he took our penalty. Yes, he took our guilt. But in exchange, you get something, follower of Jesus. You get his righteousness. You get his perfect obedience that now covers you. And according to Colossians 3, you are now hidden in Jesus because of your faith in him. That's so important because if Jesus just died for your sins, that's great but you need his righteousness in order for God to accept you because his standard of acceptance is perfection. And Jesus did that. So if you have your faith upon Jesus today, look, you are covered in the righteousness of God. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your shame. He doesn't see all the secrets. He sees Jesus and his righteousness and accepts you and loves you as if you were Christ. The beautiful reality of that is that nothing and no one can snatch you away from his hand. Well, Paul goes on and he says that Jesus was buried and then he raised to life on the third day according to the scriptures. This means is that this was God's plan A. It's not God's plan B. This was to fulfill his sovereign plan from, the, from before the foundations of the world. He fulfilled it. And then verses five through nine, Paul says that there were eyewitnesses, that, that Jesus appeared to not only Peter and the 12 disciples and over 500 other followers, but even Paul himself on the road to Damascus. Paul is saying, look, the good news is rock solid true and you can trust it. But look, I don't wanna skip over the resurrection. I know it's not Easter. We're gonna talk about the resurrection because this is extremely important to our faith because Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus rose again three days later as proof of his victory. Look, a way, a way to understand the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection, think about it this way. The resurrection is this cosmic announcement that Jesus Christ not only has power over the grave, not only has power over our sin, not only has power over Satan and darkness, 
but Jesus Christ has power to make all things new, including your life, including the sinfulness of your life and the messiness and all of the disobedience of your life. Jesus, through the resurrection, can make you new. And so look, why? Why is the resurrection so important? Because it is God declaring no one is too far gone for God not to save. There's no sin too heavy, too much, that God cannot extend his grace and mercy and save and make you new. But there's no amount of lying or stealing or alcohol abuse or drug abuse or pornography or adultery. I mean, you go down the list, you fill in the blank. There is nothing that you can do that can outmatch the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon said that God loves to forgive us more than we love to sin. And that is amazingly good news. Like I wanna press this in this morning because sometimes we can hear this message in culture where you know, all these different paths lead to the same destination, right? I'm sure you've heard that before. Like you need to be reminded today that the, the story of Christianity and the gospel of Jesus is so unique and it is so different than any other story and any other religion out there. There are over 4,200 different religions, but one empty tomb. There's only one resurrection. And look, we are an empty tomb people. We are a resurrection people. There's no other resurrection in any other story, in any other religion, which means there's no other power over the grave, over sin, over Satan, than the story that is found in King Jesus. Look, so we make this gospel everything for us because of the resurrection power to make us new, but also the story of the gospel is centered on grace. It's centered on grace. I love Acts 4.12. It says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus was given. You did not earn him. Didn't work for him. You didn't jump through the right religious hoops for him to come and die for you. He was given as a free gift of grace so you could be saved. There's only one name, only one name that can bring you to salvation. It's the name of Jesus. It's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It's the creator of the universe. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And there's coming a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King of the entire universe. That's the name that saves us. And this message of the gospel is good news. It is life-changing news. What I'm talking about this morning is not just good advice. The gospel is not God giving you the ability to turn over a new leaf and now perform for him. Oh, the gospel's not about behavior modification. The gospel, look right at me. The gospel is the power of God that takes those who are dead in their sins and makes them alive in Jesus Christ. We're talking about a resurrection, even in your life, that God has demonstrated in and through the gospel message. Keller puts it this way, talking about the resurrection. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, 
then you have to accept all that he said. If you didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? In other words, because Jesus did defeat death, he demands full allegiance and full submission, full surrender as we follow him. Because I close this morning, I just wanna be very, very direct with you. I know that I know that we are at church right now, and this tends to be kind of the universal sign that you're a Christian, that heathens sleep in, Christians go to church, and that's partly true, but it's also partly not true because you could be here right now in this room and you could be dead in your sins just playing the religious game, the spiritual game. So I wanna ask you today, have you bent your knee to King Jesus and have you surrendered everything to him? Because being a true Christian means that you have stopped trusting in yourself, you have stopped relying on your good deeds outweighing your bad, and you have declared in faith that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and only through Jesus can your sins be forgiven. And my question for you today is, have you done that? I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you if you're spiritual. I'm not asking you if you go to church. I'm asking you if you have died, if you have surrendered everything and followed Jesus. And my prayer is that you would do that today. We pray for that all week. I pray for you that if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you might feel just utterly exhausted because you're trying to play the religious game, my prayer is that today would be the day of your salvation. And if you want that to be true in your life, I would love to talk to you after the service. We've got even leaders at the Next Steps table would love to engage with you in a conversation about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But Paul doesn't end there. I wanna encourage those of you who are followers of Jesus with verses 10 and 11. There's one more aspect here that's so, so helpful is that the gospel of grace must be lived out. I found this so powerful as I was kind of looking at the end of this passage. Paul starts talking about the grace of God, not just as something that has saved him, but it's actually something that is empowering him to work harder than anyone else. I found that so powerful that, that God's grace is utterly sufficient. I mean, God's grace took the apostle Paul, who was persecuting Christians, killing Christians, saves him, and then he becomes a, a leader within the Christian faith. And I think that this is so, so helpful for us today because I think there are so many people and even people in this room right now where you are weary, you are tired, you are exhausted, you are at wit's end. And, and it's largely because you are relying on your own resources instead of the bottomless well of God's grace. And if God's grace can take a person who's persecuting Christians save them, make them a leader in the Christian faith, and now empower him to work harder than anybody else, my challenge for you is to stop relying on your own strength and rely on the sufficiency of God's grace that he's made available to you. Look, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this. He says, that he, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What a message for us who live in Hamilton County, in weakness. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Look, if you're here today and you're exhausted, I just wanna encourage you, if you could just understand that it is your weaknesses and your inadequacies that opens up the lid of your heart for God to pour into you his strengthening grace and power. It's self-sufficiency that closes that lid, but it is your weakness that opens it up so God can pour in his grace in your life. Look, if dependency upon God is the target, then weakness is an advantage. And so what do we do with grace? We receive it. We receive grace by faith. That's what I want to do right now in this moment. If you could bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus and you would say that you are in a season of weariness, discouragement, your weaknesses are all around you. You wake up in the morning and you feel like, how can I go on? I just want to pray for you right now in this moment. God, we approach your throne of grace and we approach you all because of Jesus. But he gives us access to you. He allows us to call you Father. And God, we give you praise that you do not lack any spiritual resource. God, thank you for your generosity. Thank you that you give us everything we need to live a godly life. And I pray for those who are here today who are discouraged, who are weak. God, that you would strengthen them, that you would remind them, Lord, that you are with them, that you are for them, and Lord, that your presence can empower them and sustain them to live a faithful and godly life. God, help us, as the Proverbs say, to not lean on our own understanding, but to trust in you. God, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.